Listener discretion is advised. This episode features discussions of anti-Semitism and brief discussions of suicide that may be upsetting. We advise extreme caution for listeners under 13. Throughout the spring and summer of 1944, the Soviet Red Army marched through Eastern Europe, delivering decisive military defeats to the Axis powers armies, including the Romanians. In the early days of the war, the Romanian army was claiming land from the Russians. Now, the Soviets were having their revenge. By August, the Red Army was just outside the Romanian capital of Bucharest. With Romania on the verge of destruction, 22-year-old King Mihai faced a daunting situation. He was largely powerless, his title merely symbolic. The true power lay with Ion Antonescu, the authoritarian Nazi ally. But Mihai realized that if Romania were to be saved from Soviet destruction, someone needed to step in and do something drastic. On August 23, 1944, King Mihai summoned Antonescu to the royal palace in the late afternoon. When Antonescu strode into the building, Mihai delivered an ultimatum. Agree to step down or face the consequences. The 22-year-old king and 62-year-old dictator stared at each other with malice. Everyone else in the room waited with bated breath. They knew that Antonescu's response would determine the fate of Romania. Welcome to Dictators, a Spotify original from Parcast. I'm Richard. And I'm Kate. You can find all episodes of Dictators and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. This season, we're looking at lesser-known World War II dictators who are allied with Nazi Germany and fascist Italy. Last week, we explored Ion Antonescu's rise through the ranks of the Romanian army and his years-long feud with King Carl II. Ultimately, with the help of the fascist group the Iron Guard, Antonescu was able to depose the king. This week, we'll explore how Antonescu and the Iron Guard fought one another for mastery of Romania. We'll also examine Antonescu's role in the Holocaust and how a young king and his co-conspirators brought down the dictator. We'll have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. Search To Die For in your podcast app to follow the show. I'm Tanya Mosley. In 1987, my sister Anita vanished without a trace. 
Decades later, thanks to DNA, we found her. But that's only the beginning of the story. She Has a Name is a new audio documentary that explores the search for redemption, confronting trauma, and healing in the face of unimaginable loss. Subscribe now to Truth Be Told Presents She Has a Name, where every revelation brings us closer to the truth. In September 1940, 58-year-old General Ion Antonescu forced Romania's royal monarch, King Carl II, to abdicate. Carl's debauched lifestyle and corrupt government repulsed Antonescu, and he was convinced that the only way to save Romania was if a disciplined officer was at the helm. But while Antonescu was relatively popular and had the bulk of the army behind him, he lacked a political base. So in order to help govern, Antonescu turned to the Iron Guard, the far-right, deeply anti-Semitic paramilitary group similar to the Nazi party in Germany. Despite also being on the far-right and anti-Semitic, Antonescu never officially joined the Iron Guard. In his view, they were a bunch of street punks and rabble-rousers who lacked discipline. But the Guard was popular, becoming the third largest political group in the country before King Carl's abdication. Whatever personal reservations he may have had, Antonescu knew he needed to find a way to work with them. The Guard needed Antonescu, too. They craved power and legitimacy. According to historian Dennis Delatant, the Guard needed Antonescu because he was trusted by the army and the leaders of the Democratic parties. Unfortunately, the union between Antonescu and the Guard proved devastating, most of all for Romania's Jewish population. Almost immediately, Romania's Jewish community became concerned with the Iron Guard now in government. So much so that Wilhelm Fieldermann, a prominent Jewish leader, aired his concerns in a letter to Antonescu. Antonescu replied with the reassurance that, quote, If Fieldermann's co-religionists do not openly or secretly sabotage the regime, either politically or economically, the Jewish population will not suffer. General Antonescu keeps his word. Whether or not Antonescu was sincere is difficult to say. But if he was, the Iron Guard had very different ideas about how Romania's Jewish population should be treated. And they were Antonescu's new ride-or-die allies. Over the next couple of months, Iron Guard ministers passed legislation to expel Jewish employees from Romanian industries and expropriate Jewish real estate and shipping businesses. Antonescu did nothing to stop it. Once World War II began, far-right extremist groups intensified their anti-Semitism as a way to curry favor with the Nazis. Ironically, the Nazi reaction to the Iron Guard was ambivalence. Though the Nazis approved of their actions, German leaders were far more concerned with economic uncertainty in Romania. The German war machine needed a steady supply of raw materials, especially oil, to flow from Romania. They feared that the Iron Guard's erratic behavior would disrupt all that. The Germans were not wrong about the Guard's lack of discipline. Even as the Guardists held positions within the government, 
Many of its members continued to clash with their political opponents in the streets. Antonescu urged guard leaders to rein in the violence, but his demands fell on deaf ears. They continued to terrorize Romania's Jews and summarily execute politicians who had persecuted them during King Carl's dictatorship. This all flew in the face of the general's drive to restore law and order to the country. As World War II spread into the Balkans, the Iron Guard's lawlessness became intolerable to Adolf Hitler, especially once British troops moved into Greece to help fight against a recent Italian invasion and Romania's strategic importance increased. Hitler became convinced that the British would use Greece as a base to attack Romania's oil fields. So Hitler decided he was going to beat them to it and use Romania as a springboard for an attack on northern Greece. Of course, Hitler, in typical fashion, didn't inform Antonescu of these plans. Even during their first meeting, which occurred in late November 1940, Hitler remained tight-lipped on his intentions. Instead, he did something he didn't normally do. Let someone else speak. According to journalist Paul Kenyon, Antonescu spoke uninterrupted for two hours. Hitler was impressed by the sheer determination and intellectual clarity of his earnest and articulate guest. It was a welcome change from the smug ramblings of Mussolini. But Antonescu had a reason for the polemics. He was desperate to convince Hitler to revoke the second Vienna Award. If you recall, the award forced Romania to give Transylvania to Hungary, a move that was deeply unpopular in Romania. And although Antonescu agreed to honor it upon taking power, privately he vowed to get Transylvania back. Hitler remained non-committal on the subject, But that didn't stop Antonescu from signing the Tripartite Pact and officially joining the Axis powers. In truth, he had little choice. Romania's economy depended on Germany. With the alliance now official, German troops were allowed to march into Romania. For Hitler, this was step one of setting Romania up as a strategic Nazi base for future projects. For Antonescu, It added strength against foreign invaders like the Soviets. Or, even more pressing, against trouble with the Iron Guard. Because as German troops entered Romania, tensions between Antonescu and the Guard reached a fever pitch. Throughout the end of 1940, Guardists continued to harass, rob, and murder Jews. Antonescu ordered the Iron Guard's leader, Horia Sima, to get his men under control. Instead, in January 1941, Sima complained that the Germans were taking Jewish property, which the Iron Guard had rightfully stolen. Hoping to stop tensions before they got out of hand, Hitler called a summit to mediate between Antonescu and Sima. But Sima, who thought he should be running Romania, worried that he would still be left out of the real discussions with Hitler. So Sima announced he would not go to the summit at all. And thus, he was left out of discussions. According to Denis Delatant, Antonescu told Hitler that the Iron Guard's revolutionary program 
had created confusion in those ministries under Gardist control, and, as a result, public opinion, which had overwhelmingly supported the Guard, had now abandoned it. Hitler advised that Antonescu should just make himself the leader of the Iron Guard. For whatever reason, Antonescu interpreted this as Hitler's support to strike against the Guard. Luckily for Antonescu, a few days after meeting with Hitler, an opportunity presented itself to do just that. On January 19, 1941, a German military officer was murdered in Bucharest. Antonescu blamed the Iron Guard-aligned Minister of the Interior for failing to protect the German officer. He used the incident as a pretext to dismiss the minister and several Iron Guard police chiefs. Rather than step down quietly, two of the chiefs barricaded themselves in police headquarters alongside 50 Guard supporters. When Romanian troops arrived to eject them, the guards opened fire. The defiance of the police chief inspired guardists to rise against Antonescu. They stormed media offices and printed manifestos accusing British agents of the murder and calling the Antonescu government, quote, Jews and Jew lovers. Antonescu hesitated to escalate the situation, fearing a full-blown civil war. Instead, both he and Horia Sima, the guard's leader, turned to Hitler for advice and support. Hitler backed Antonescu, urging him to, quote, intervene decisively and clean up. With Hitler fully supporting Antonescu, Sima realized there was little hope of overthrowing the dictator. Sima was advised to order the Iron Guard to surrender, and in exchange, Antonescu would guarantee that they would not be harmed. Both Sima and Antonescu agreed to the deal. But once the Guardists laid down their arms, Antonescu changed his tune. He announced that he would hang the leaders of the uprising, including Sima. He wanted the Iron Guard out of his hair permanently, and discipline restored. He didn't get his wish. Before Antonescu could execute the Iron Guard rebels, the German Secret Service smuggled them out of the country. The always duplicitous Hitler knew that if he kept Sima in his back pocket waiting in Germany, he had a useful threat to keep Antonescu in line. Still, for now, for all intents and purposes, Ion Antonescu had taken down the Iron Guard. They had stood up against the Romanian general and lost. Those unable to flee the country were purged from the government. Now Antonescu was in complete control. He had a free hand to refashion the country into the great nation he wanted Romania to become. And like most of Hitler's allies, Antonescu decided that the best way to do that was to get rid of the country's hundreds of thousands of Jews. Coming up, Antonescu invades the Soviet Union and takes an active hand in the genocide of Romania's Jews and Roma. This is Storybooth Daily. Tune into this new podcast for your daily fix of real-life stories from real people around the world. 
We've received thousands of stories that we want to share with you, from talking about being ghosted or realizing that being popular isn't all that great sometimes. No topic is off the table. This is a podcast that's not only for you, but by you. Story Booth Daily premieres November 8th, so be sure to check us out Monday through Friday. Story Booth Daily is a wheelhouse and Spotify original from Parcast. Now, back to the story. When Ion Antonescu came to power in Romania in September 1940, he had little choice but to share the burden of government with the radical Iron Guard. But when the Iron Guard proved unwilling to end its careless street violence, Antonescu moved against the group. By the time the dust settled, he stood triumphant. Now he could impose strict discipline and transform Romania. After filling empty government posts with officers, Antonescu declared that this state is a militaristic one. I want to introduce a patriotic, heroic, military-type education because economic education and all the others follow on from it. As such, Antonescu outlawed political opposition, though he fell short of total repression. For example, when members of the former peasant or liberal parties sent him letters of criticism, instead of arresting them, Antonescu responded with his own letters explaining his actions. Though he didn't allow them to participate in the government, Antonescu permitted the leaders of the democratic parties to continue to hold meetings. Still, they were essentially nothing more than pundits. A large part of Antonescu's motivation for this crackdown was his need to curtail any lingering sympathy for the Iron Guard. For Hitler, meanwhile, the timing of Antonescu's consolidation of power couldn't have been better. With German troops firmly installed in Romania, the time had come to launch the Nazis' most audacious plan yet, the invasion of the Soviet Union. Since 1939, Germany and the Soviet Union had agreed to mutual non-aggression as they carved up Eastern Europe amongst themselves. But Hitler always planned on betraying Joseph Stalin. Little did Antonescu know, but Romania was integral to that betrayal. Months in the planning, Hitler finally told Antonescu about his plans, codenamed Operation Barbarossa, in early June 1941. Romania's role, he declared, was to protect the right flank of the German army Group South. Rather than feeling angered or blindsided by this call to war, Antonescu was pleased. He told Hitler that Romanians were prepared to march side by side with the Germans, especially since it meant fighting the Soviets. For over a year, Romanians had longed for revenge against the Soviets after King Carl II gave them the territories of Bessarabia and Bukovina. This, along with Hungarian-controlled Transylvania, was widely considered Greater Romania, and they wanted it back. But for Antonescu, attacking the Soviets wasn't just about revenge. According to Denis Deletant, Antonescu also saw the German attack as an ideological crusade against the infidel communism and his participation in it as an act of Christian righteousness. On June 22, 1941, Germany launched Operation Barbarossa. 
over 3 million German soldiers and 680,000 Romanians simultaneously crossed into Soviet territory, making it one of the largest invasions in human history. The surprise attack yielded the gains Antonescu craved. By July, Romania recovered disputed Bessarabia and northern Bukovina. In Bucharest, radio broadcasts described Romania's sudden entry into conflict as a great holy war. And with news of early success, Romanians for the most part agreed. Before long, the streets were filled with people cheering on their soldiers. But not everyone was thrilled with Antonescu's actions, especially not the royal family. For 19-year-old King Mihai, Carl II's son, the invasion proved just how little power he had. Antonescu didn't even inform Mihai of the plan. Mihai did not approve of Romania's entry into the war, nor the amount of power Antonescu wielded. He told a British intelligence officer, I needed a great deal of self-control to put up with what I have since Marshal Antonescu took over the government, violating the Constitution. But beyond the British officer, Mihai had few people he could complain to. Journalist Douglas Martin writes that Mihai was virtually a prisoner. His only real function, beyond the ceremonial, seems to have been reviewing troops. Otherwise, he rarely appeared in public. Still, King Mihai wasn't the only royal family member to become frustrated with Antonescu. Like Mihai, the Queen Mother quietly expressed her distress about Antonescu taking Romania into war, as well as the lack of respect Antonescu showed the royal family. Even more so, the Queen Mother was shocked and appalled by reports about the way Romanians were treating the Jews, all with Antonescu's blessing. As Antonescu drew closer to Germany, repression of the country's Jews increased. Before Operation Barbarossa, Jews were exempted from military service and instead subjected to forced community labor. Typically, they were assigned to repairing the nation's infrastructure, cleaning streets and public areas, and agricultural work. In July, Antonescu ordered that Jews in camps should perform hard labor and that if anyone ran off, one in ten of those remaining should be shot. If the Jews were not working hard enough, Antonescu advised that they be denied food. Tragically, the persecution Jews suffered in newly acquired territory was even worse. As the Romanian army marched through Bessarabia, Bukovina, and an occupied zone called Transnistria, many of the Jewish inhabitants were systematically murdered. A lifelong anti-Semite, Antonescu equated Judaism with Satan, even telling a government official that the war, quote, offered abundant proof that Satan is the Jew. Meanwhile, he also believed that Judaism and communism were virtually synonymous and saw no Jew as more dangerous than one living in formerly Soviet territory. Thus, Jews in Bessarabia, Bukovina, and Transnistria suffered exponentially. An estimated 80% of the Transnistrian Jews died under Antonescu's regime. According to Denis Delatant, 
Most of these deaths resulted from inhumane treatment and a callous disregard for life rather than from industrialized killing. Forced marches, deplorable conditions in ghettos, starvation, and disease killed thousands. These deaths were accompanied by mass shootings carried out by Romanian and Nazi soldiers. And as the violence escalated, Antonescu would sometimes use unrelated events as excuses to further persecute the Jews. For example, when Soviet saboteurs blew up an occupied government building in Odessa, Ukraine, killing a Romanian general, 16 officers, 35 soldiers, and 9 civilians, Antonescu ordered a round of reprisals. Several hundred Jews and communists were either hanged or shot. Justifying his decree, Antonescu remarked, That's how you should act, because I am responsible before the country and history. Let the Jews come from America and hold me responsible. Arguably one of the worst single atrocities under Antonescu's watch occurred in the village of Bogdanovka. Initially, 28,000 Jews were crammed into literal pigsties on a former state farm. By December 1941, they held 52,000 Jews. Fearing that an outbreak of typhus would spread to Axis troops, the Romanian and Ukrainian authorities at Bogdanovka decided to massacre the Jewish prisoners. 5,000 were locked into stables and burned alive. Meanwhile, the other 43,000 were taken into nearby woods and shot. According to Delatant, the record of bestiality shown by the Romanian authorities at Bogdanovka, Domanovka, and Akmechitka ranks alongside the most horrific acts of mass butchery carried out during the war. After Germany, Romania was responsible for the largest number of Jewish deaths during the Holocaust. An estimated 300,000 died across Romanian-controlled territory. And since Romania remained a sovereign state during its alliance with Hitler, these killings were perpetrated on Antonescu's orders, not the Nazis. Strangely, though, Antonescu was not an eager participant in Hitler's so-called final solution. In January 1942, the Nazi High Command gathered at Wannsee and formally established its extermination program against the Jews in Europe. They pressured Antonescu's government to participate in the final solution for six long months before Antonescu sent word that he would deport Romanian Jews to the death camps in Poland. Then, reports of the initial deportations leaked to the public and were met with horror. A group of intellectuals wrote to the government, saying, Whatever our views of the Jews, we are Christians and human beings. And we shudder at the idea that the innocent citizens of a state could be stripped of all their wealth and driven from the land of their birth. Besides the humanitarian concerns, many worried about Romania's international image and reprisals from the Allies at war's end. Participation in the Holocaust made it unlikely that Great Britain and the U.S. would support Romania's claim to Transylvania. Ultimately, Antonescu changed his mind and decided not to deport Romania's Jews to Poland. Why exactly ultimately remains a mystery. In all likelihood, 
He was motivated by a mixture of factors, like Romania's poor international image, or perhaps by the lobbying of foreign envoys, liberal politicians, and religious leaders. Or maybe it was due to the Queen Mother, Antonescu's harshest critic when it came to Jewish persecution. In fact, the Queen Mother so hated Antonescu that a Nazi report noted she, quote, told the king that what was happening to people in Romania was a disgrace and that she could not bear it any longer, all the more so because the king, her son, and her name would be permanently associated in Romanian history with the crimes committed against the Jews. Unfortunately, Mihai could do nothing to grasp power from Antonescu. Despite widespread outrage over the deportations, Antonescu remained fairly popular among Romanians, mainly because he had regained the territory Mihai's father lost. Plus, he had the support of Adolf Hitler, despite the fact that Hitler was displeased that Antonescu refused to participate in the final solution. For the rest of the war, he continued to pressure the Romanians into capitulating. Antonescu never did. Still, if Hitler stewed over Antonescu's stubbornness with the final solution, at least he knew the dictator would help him advance through the Soviet Union. After reclaiming Bessarabia and northern Bukovina in 1941, Antonescu kept marching further into Russia proper alongside Axis troops, despite the objections of some of his advisors. After all, Romania had the Soviet territory it wanted now. But Antonescu had two practical reasons for continuing on with the Germans. First, reclaiming the eastern territories would be temporary if Germany did not finish off the Soviet Union. Because Antonescu tied himself militarily to Hitler, Romania's future hinged on their victory. Second, Antonescu hoped that by showing continued military loyalty, Hitler would finally end the Second Vienna Award and return Transylvania into Romanian hands. If successful, Romanian territory would extend to the borders it claimed right after World War I. So Antonescu ordered the army to keep pushing into the Soviet Union. In October 1941, Romanian and German troops captured the key Soviet city of Odessa. It came at a terrible loss. Over 98,000 troops were killed, wounded, or missing. But the fallout extended beyond battlefield casualties. In the wake of Odessa, on December 7, 1941, Britain declared war on Romania. As if things couldn't get worse, A few days later, Germany and Italy declared war on the United States as a hollow show of support for Japan's attack on Pearl Harbor. Germany, of course, told Romania that they should consider themselves at war with the U.S. as well. Ironically, Antonescu was troubled that Romania was now embroiled into conflict with Britain and the U.S. Politically, his feud was solely against the Soviets. Fighting the U.S. and Britain, capitalist powerhouses, was nonsensical. Nevertheless, Antonescu had little choice. He declared war on the United States in order to show loyalty to his Nazi ally. Loyalty that held strong into mid-1942, 
despite the fact that the Nazis still hadn't defeated the Soviet Red Army. In the summer, Hitler decided to change strategy in an attempt to turn things around. Instead of going after Moscow, he would try to take Stalingrad, an industrial giant. Antonescu agreed to the plan. Not only would it help fuel the German war machine, but it would also be a symbolically humiliating defeat. After all, Stalingrad was named after the Soviet leader, Joseph Stalin. But what neither Antonescu nor Hitler realized was that the Red Army wasn't going to just let the Axis powers walk in without a fight. And when the fight began in August, it proved to be one of the most decisive battles in the entire war. And led some Romanians to believe that perhaps Ion Antonescu was leading the country to its destruction. Coming up, a 22-year-old king takes on Antonescu. Now, back to the story. In the summer of 1942, 60-year-old Ion Antonescu had a firm grip over Romania, thanks in large part to his strong relationship with Adolf Hitler. Despite refusing to participate in the final solution, Antonescu allowed his men to massacre hundreds of thousands of Jews and was firmly entrenched in Hitler's war against the Soviets. Culminating in August 1942, when Romanian and German troops descended on the strategically important city of Stalingrad. The Battle of Stalingrad was among the bloodiest ever fought. For about five brutal months, both sides refused to give up, even as they succumbed to ruthless door-to-door -door street fighting. Eventually, Soviet forces broke the stalemate by punching through the under-equipped Romanian line. And finally, in early February 1943, the Soviets surrounded the Axis armies, bringing the battle to an end. According to Denis Delatant, the Romanian losses were put at 155,010 dead, wounded, or missing. This represented a quarter of all Romanian troops engaged on the Eastern Front. In response to the crushing defeat, Ion Antonescu sent a telegram to his chief of staff in which he said, I bear the responsibility before history because I did not do more to avert the massacre of the armies, which was due to the cavalier attitude of the German command. The Battle of Stalingrad wasn't just a disaster for Romania, however. It proved to be the turning point in the war. From here on out, the Axis armies went from an offensive to a defensive strategy. Hitler had to accept that his dream of taking Moscow was now over. Ion Antonescu, meanwhile, remained optimistic about a German victory, at least publicly. Privately, he seems to have seen the writing on the wall and began altering state policy in case the Allies did win. Throughout 1943, he eased up on some of the persecution against the Jews. Then he started advocating for Jewish emigration to Palestine. These policies didn't represent a change in Antonescu's virulent anti-Semitism. They were a strategic maneuver 
because around the same time, Antonescu began to test diplomatic waters with the Allies. Not long after the defeat at Stalingrad, members of Antonescu's government reached out to the Allies in the hopes of concluding a separate peace. While Antonescu didn't order the olive branch, he also didn't stop it when he found out his men had presented it. It didn't go well. Roosevelt and Churchill insisted on an unconditional surrender, which Antonescu could not accept. Nor was the fallout ideal. Rumors of the talks reached Hitler, and in April, he confronted Antonescu about the betrayal. Antonescu brushed it aside as nothing and promised that Romania would stick by Germany to the bitter end. In truth, while Antonescu wanted a way out, he had simply concluded that Romania was too entangled with Germany for that to happen. Regardless, the fight wasn't over yet. Maybe the Axis powers could still turn things around. Hitler, however he interpreted Antonescu's profession of loyalty, had bigger issues to worry about now. He accepted it and decided not to send German troops to occupy Romania. Still, the writing was on the wall. Time was running out for Antonescu. The rejuvenated Soviet Red Army swiftly marched through Eastern Europe. By spring 1944, they had recaptured northern Bukovina and Odessa. As military defeats mounted, Antonescu stubbornly held out with the hopes of securing better surrender terms. But as the Soviets drew closer to Bucharest, the likelihood of them making concessions only diminished. Antonescu's stubborn refusal to abandon Germany and seek terms with the Soviets proved to be his undoing. With each passing day, 22-year-old King Mihai fretted over the future of Romania under a Soviet conquest. And he was increasingly convinced if Antonescu were still in power when the Red Army arrived, it spelled Romania's doom. So Mihai decided that the only solution was to orchestrate a coup. Throughout the summer, as the Soviets closed in on Bucharest, Mihai shored up support from political and military leaders. Even among the military, the consensus was that Antonescu had to go. On August 23, 1944, King Mihai summoned the dictator to the royal palace for a late afternoon meeting. As soon as Antonescu arrived, Mihai declared that he was taking Romania out of the war and that if Antonescu didn't agree to the armistice with the Allies, he would be dismissed. Antonescu replied that he took orders from no one. Mihai then signaled for four armed guards who arrested Antonescu on the spot. As they led him out of the room, Antonescu shouted, Tomorrow I will have you all shot for this. But there was no one to do the shooting. The whole army immediately fell in line with the king. The dismal war situation, combined with the intrinsic respect garnered by monarchy, ensured Mihai's claim. As Antonescu rotted away in chains, Mihai formed a new government filled with his advisors. Right away, they went about setting up for negotiation with the Allies. First, they abolished internment camps and released political prisoners. Then, Mihai announced to people, via radio, that not only had Antonescu been overthrown, 
but that Romania was going to make peace with the Allies soon. On August 31st, Soviet troops entered Bucharest and Mihai transferred Antonescu and his ministers into their custody. A few days later, the prisoners were put on a train and moved to a castle outside of Moscow. For months, Antonescu toiled in luxury. But despite the rather hospitable conditions, he grew increasingly despondent. So much so that on November 8th, he attempted suicide, but guards managed to stop him. While Antonescu sat in Moscow and awaited his fate, the world around him moved on. Throughout the spring of 1945, the Allies delivered blow after blow after blow to the Axis powers. With defeat inevitable, Hitler took his own life before falling into Soviet hands. On May 8, 1945, the Nazis surrendered, ending World War II in Europe. In Romania, a law was passed with the intent to pursue and punish those who had allied themselves with Hitler, supported fascism, allowed German troops to enter Romania, or committed war crimes. Mihai was determined to show the Allies that Antonescu's regime did not reflect the true Romania. Of course, Mihai's list of crimes included innumerable people, most of whom were never prosecuted. But by the end of May 1945, 29 Romanian officers were sentenced to death by a special court. Meanwhile, in Moscow, Stalin faced the question of what to do with Antonescu himself. Ultimately, he decided to send the dictator and his ministers back to Romania. Since a guilty verdict was already predetermined, Stalin recognized that it was better for publicity if Antonescu was tried at home. On May 6, 1946, Ion Antonescu and 23 of his supporters were put on trial in Bucharest for, quote, bringing disaster upon the country. As Romania was still occupied by Soviet troops, no one doubted that the whole spectacle was a kangaroo court overseen by Moscow. When placed on the stand, Antonescu defended his treatment of Romania's Jews, saying it was better that the state rob and attack them than the Iron Guard. He insisted that he was proud of the administration he had created in Transnistria and that his regime, quote, gave the local population better conditions than they had had previously. His arguments were fruitless. Ten days later, Antonescu and the rest were found guilty. On May 17th, he and six others were sentenced to death though King Mihai ultimately commuted the sentences of three of the condemned. In a final letter written to his wife, Antonescu said that he regretted nothing and that, quote, no one in this country has served the ordinary people with as much love and interest as I have done. On June 1st, 1946, 63-year-old Ion Antonescu and three of the condemned marched to an open area known as the Valley of the Peach Trees. They were subsequently lined up against poles and shot by a firing squad. According to legend, 
the firing squad hesitated to shoot, refusing to end the life of someone they saw as such a glorious figure. It wasn't until Antonescu bravely ordered them to do so that they did the deed. But this was just propaganda peddled by the few who still supported Antonescu. The affair was caught on camera, and in truth, Antonescu simply raised his hat to salute before he was shot. After his body fell, the executioners walked up and shot him in the head just to be certain. After the war, King Mihai was unable to keep Romania independent. Pressure from Moscow forced him to appoint Soviet-backed ministers, turning Romania into a one-party satellite state. Eventually, in 1965, the country found itself under the thumb of another dictator, Nicolae Ceausescu. It was during Ceausescu's repressive reign that in the mid-1960s, Antonescu's image found itself undergoing rehabilitation. Like Antonescu years earlier, Ceausescu desired the return of Bessarabia and northern Bukovina, which the Soviets had retaken in World War II. Distorting the fact that Antonescu was a crusader against communism, the Romanian communist rewrote Antonescu's story and painted him as a defender of Romania, naturally in the process downplaying Romania's role in the Holocaust. Antonescu's image rehabilitation increased exponentially after Ceausescu's own downfall and execution in December 1989. To this day, in the shadow of 40-plus years of communist rule, Antonescu remains a controversial figure. But the facts speak for themselves. Under Antonescu's rule, Romania was the second-largest participant in the Holocaust. An estimated 300,000 Jews in Romania died under Antonescu. Meanwhile, though Romania continues to struggle with government corruption and scandal, the country has come a long way since the days of fascism. Jettisoning populist hyperbole of the past, which called for, quote, regenerating the state and purifying Romania, the slogan of the country's current president, Klaus Johannes, is refreshingly sane for a normal Romania. Thanks for listening to Dictators. Next week, we'll dive into the life of Philippe Pétain, the puppet ruler of Vichy, France. For more information on Ion Antonescu, amongst the many sources we used, we found Hitler's Forgotten Ally, Ion Antonescu and His Regime, Romania 1940-44, by Dennis Delatant to be extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Dictators and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. Dictators is a Spotify original from Parcast. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound designed by Juan Borda, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, Carly Madden, and Bruce Katovich. This episode of Dictators was written by Devin Hughes, with writing assistance by Joe Guerra and Nora Battelle, fact-checking by Adriana Romero, and research by Bradley Klein. Dictators stars Kate Leonard and Richard Rosner. This is Story Booth Daily. Tune into this new podcast for your daily fix of real life stories from people around the world. 
Story Booth Daily premieres Monday, November 8th on Spotify. Story Booth Daily is a wheelhouse and Spotify original from ParCast.